Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central. Only on PBS. My name is Dave Hanrady and there will be no encore. Welcome to The Revisit, in which we travel back in time to check out Irish music records and all that kind of thing of the day. And the day this time is 1987. I have an all-star panel with me this week. I have Rory Lynch, a.k.a. Bantam. Hello. Hey, buddy, how are you? Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. Thank you for coming back. We have John Marr from the Irish Independent. Hello. We have Michael Maloney, who once fronted director, a band that have pride of place in my compact disc collection. Oh, well. Thank you. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> thank you for the tunes. I quite enjoyed them. And Kieran McGuinness is with me as always. How are you, sir? Very good, thank you. What was happening in 1987, pop culture-wise? Uh, well, there was uh, a woman in the British um, um, number 10 who was uh, very strong but uh, not doing that well. There was an idiot celebrity, apparently, in the uh, in the American White House. There was an unstable world economy. There was a huge suicide attack in a place called Hungersford where 16 people were killed and the guy turned himself. So a lot of it was, you know, a bit like this year, really. Um, I thought you were like building up to like a real subtle punchline, but you just, you know. No, yeah, right. I just, I just, I thought it was interesting. It's just, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on that is going on now. So you had the Thatcher, Reagan, Gorbachev thing um, in politics um, in other stuff. Prozac was uh, released came out for the first time The Simpsons made its debut Disneyland Paris um, Sunflowers by Van Gogh sold for 22.5 million which is I think still a record um, Lionel Messi was born didn't make headlines at the time but um, Andy Warhol died Liberace died Best Picture was Platoon 
um, and the albums of the year were kind of well uh, albums of the year were Bad Michael Jackson Appetite for Destruction Sign of the Times Prince Strange Ways Here We Come Kiss Me Kiss Me Kiss Me uh, The Cure there was also uh, Songs About Fucking by uh, Big Black and anyway tons of stuff with that replacements album as well and the films were classic 80s classic 80s most classic 80s of, of all time I The think. Lost Boys is that in there? I feel like it is uh, well it isn't I didn't see it no um, Three Men and Baby mm-hmm. yeah Fatal Attraction Robocop Lethal Weapon Dirty Dancing Wall Street Beverly Hills Cop 2 wow. Jesus I mean you know this is strong it's yeah, seminal sure. you know what I'm saying <laughs> and as well uh, as I said I, I think I said The Simpsons as well so like a lot of stuff it wasn't exactly like this year in terms of movies no it was better although they've probably yeah. all been you know remade and released yeah. there's been a Robocop well. remake already yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you was, know yeah. who directed Three Men and the Baby? It's a real good pub quiz oh, question. I think I, yeah, it's it's Leonard Nimoy of played yeah. Spock in Star no Trek fame. Oh. Yep. Wow. At the helm for that one. Not sure about the sequel though. But yeah. it's a bit unrealistic, you know, as a person who has had a baby. You know, I just it isn't just it isn't as, it isn't as madcap as that. I find you don't. <laughs> a lot of it's more kind of straightforward. You know, you don't share responsibility of your child with the rest of Delorentos. Then no, no. In, in madcap scenarios, they won't even let me show them cute videos a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but they're so cute. Well, on the Irish front, as always, we had a long list to get down to a short list, and I guess we should probably say what the short list is off the top of the head. Let's do it. So um, we have our five albums: Van Morrison, Poetic Champions, Compose. Uh, Cry Before Dawn, Crimes of Conscience, Conscience, Sinead O'Connor, Lion and the Cobra, um, That Petrol Emotion and Babel, and uh, Dublin Four Piece U2 with Joshua Tree. I swear this podcast is not sponsored by U2, but yeah. every time we do one of these episodes, they come up in some fashion. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, follow the money is what I would say to any listeners. You think there's a conspiracy theory at play there? Are you suggesting that there's some sort of conspiracy that Bono is in some way responsible for this podcast? I'm suggesting that they should be throwing us some green at this stage. (laughs) So if you're listening, Bono, you know, by all means. Which he is. We're here to, like, you know, do the marketing that you so desperately need for your underground band. Uh, Anything that didn't make it this year that you were unhappy about, Kier? Um, To be honest with you, um, it was a funny year because, as often happens in the 80s lists, there's a lot of stuff that couldn't be found. So I was disappointed that um, Crooked Mile by Micro Disney, I couldn't find it anywhere. After I listened to a lot of Fatima Mansions and, as I said, Micro Disney on this podcast, um, I was just was disappointed that that wasn't there. Um, lots of stuff by um, Mary Black. I think you listened to Mary Black. Yeah, um, good. Bit yeah. dated, bit dated though. Bit I mean, dated, like, yeah. like, but that, this is, seems to be something that we kind of run into quite a lot, especially when we deal with the eighties. Like, I mean, it's it's one of those things where it's almost churlish, but kind of unavoidable to say that some stuff just sounds very, very of its time. Yeah, um, the Paul Brady album um, didn't. You know, we've had Paul Brady uh, um, as one of the, the the kind of recommended albums before, but it, it wasn't it wasn't one that stood out. And I don't know if anyone else had anything else that they listened to that nearly made it. Not quite. I mean, like Christy Moore was frozen out yet again, and which is not personal. <laughs> well, he was on the Moving Hearts album, uh, so he has a, has appeared. <laughs> he has appeared. Yeah, like like it, it, it not nice big asterisk next to his name. But uh, I, like, I just don't want people who like are mad Christy fans to be like, oh for fuck's sake, turn it off. Don't turn it off. It's going to be a good episode. But uh, did anyone else listen to anything that they 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 were disappointed didn't get on or thought could have or was borderline? I kind of thought Intua Nua had a chance of 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 getting on and was kind of relieved they didn't because. Kind of think they're one of the great overrated Irish bands of that era, okay. of which there are quite a few. It w- it's funny, as including one that we'll be talking about. Oh, <laughs> that's a tease. I like it. It's good. <laughs> Shit, which one? Could, which one could be? Which one could it be? Uh, well, how about we start off and see if it's this one? This is that petrol emotion. Last 
Okay, so uh, that was That Petrol Emotion and their second album, Babel. Um, if people don't know That Petrol Emotion, that's um, John Damio O'Neill brothers from, they were in the undertones, obviously, for, for years. And uh, when the undertones finished, they, they joined together. Um, uh, along with North American, it just says North American on his bio, and I couldn't find a lot about him. Steve Mack, um, uh, and um, they they formed that petrol emotion. Um, I think this is their second album, as I said, but it comes really fully formed for their sound. It's really it's really interesting album. It's real lively. It's real. It's kind of it predates all that nineties kind of indie scuzzy rock. Like it sounds like loads of those bands like. Um, Blur and the Stone Roses and it sounds like all their earliest incar- incarnations which is really weird it, it sounds like you're hearing um, like you're hearing the inspiration for all those bands it's it's so funny like some of the songs like um, Swamp which is the first song it's got a kind of American kind of rootsy kind of feel I suppose um, and uh, it really sounds like a lot of the Stone Roses stuff but anyway uh, 11 tracks here and um, it's it's guitar-y without being too guitar-y it's um, it's rocky without being too rocky. It's it's just a really it's a really strong album. I'm amazed I haven't heard um, it before. And I know it's funny. Sometimes you, you think that you, you think albums that have an influence and a legacy, you'd be you, you'd be able to he- hear it or you would have known them. And I didn't know it at all. And uh, yeah, no, it's it's I think it's an excellent song. A song on it called Big Decision, which is just one of those new melodies in the world. I was like, this sounds like it's always been there, you know. And uh, yeah, I I think it's a a, a really strong album. Can I ask you to elaborate on it's guitar-y but not too guitar-y? Well, it's, there's two guitarists in the band and there's riffs everywhere, but it never feels like that, that it's like, a, you know, a muddy rock record, you know, kind of way. Like, it's, the the guitars are, you know, thin and they're they're there for kind of melodic purposes. They're, they're you know, one of the songs, I think it's, a, um, uh, it's I think it's for what it's worth. The, riff, the riffs in it are really, they sound... Very clean, yeah. It's very clean, but it's also there. It's almost like they're underused. The guitars just come in for the chorus, and then kind of it's just kind of rhythm for the verses and stuff like that. And I don't know. It's I think it just sounds like very polished and together and um, confident in a way that you know. I don't know. I suppose they've been re- releasing albums for years, but um, I, I mean, John O'Neill wrote you know Teenage Kicks and all those kind of songs, so he was well used to writing songs. He knew how things should sound. And uh, yeah, it's just I don't know it's it, it felt quite ahead of its time the whole thing. Is it a bit too polished though? I mean, you were kind of saying about like it's a bit scuzzy in in certain regards, and the song is definitely quite tight like in terms of the arrangements. But like, I thought it was a bit clean, like a bit too clean. It is well. One thing is very. I'd say they practiced this, you know, for months beforehand because there's a lot of times where the all the members of the band are doing rhythm parts or uh, you know they're doing uh, accentuating kind of um, melodic changes like they all kind of do it together you know stuff like that like which comes from practice so maybe that took a little bit you know maybe that made it sound a bit polished but i i think it's i think it's full of life and energy which i think when things are too polished it can kind of shine that off it so yeah i think it's i think it's excellent and also i was really surprised by the reviews the reviews are amazing you know it got like you know Four or four and a half out of five in Melody Maker, and it got like Rolling uh, Stone gave it like five out of five or something. Like, and I yeah. was thinking, of why? I was just very, very surprised that I hadn't heard this album before, and I had it on in the house today. I was in the garden, you know, I had it up reasonably loud, not too loud to annoy the neighbours, but I was doing work and digging, whatever. And I had it up reasonably loud, and uh, my wife came out and she's like, "What's that? That's brilliant," you know. And and I think 
I think that, that I got that as well, you know. Instantly, I was like, this is good, you know. And yeah, it is. And, the, you know, they signed to Polydor as well. There was a big label behind them. As you say, very slick. The first album was also very polished. Didn't sound like undertones with a different frontman. You know, quite a different sound. Um, but I, I think you're absolutely right in terms of how strange it is that something that's that accomplished has kind of fallen off the, the radar, so to speak. Um, I remember a few years ago kind of you know as as all music critics eventually do you come up with your best Irish albums ever and I forgot about them completely you don't forget about teenage uh, about, about about the undertones uh, at all but that petrol emotion yeah it just yeah. bypassed weirdly you know I, I guess it's one of those things I, I, I've never made like a a list for you know top 50 albums this but I'm sure you go well there has to be a Sinead in there there has to be a U2 you know a couple, yeah. whatever <laughs> and I, I, maybe it's because the band isn't as big it's easy to kind of overlook the, the album but a lot of this for me um, is more interesting I don't want to be empirical about that but uh, you know a lot of it is I, interests me a lot more than uh, than the undertones did you know like I wonder though based on what John was saying there in terms of kind of forgetting them and them kind of falling by the wayside I wonder if that's to do with them being deceptively versatile because I mean like they come from an era where music categorization and genres were a lot more like I guess easier to do and a lot more kind of acceptable I mean nowadays with kind of uh, I, I don't know about you John but I think as a music critic I, I try and not categorize acts because I find that they they almost resent it people don't want to be put into boxes and they want to be kind of free to be whatever they want to be but I guess back in the 80s it was like well this is punk or this is rock or this is much better demarcation I suppose completely yeah and I feel like with this band you know I kind of went in expecting it to be a certain thing and then it wasn't and then it was a bit more kind of, you know, as you say, mature, maybe a bit more accomplished than I was expecting. And, you know, the fault lies at me on that one. But as regards, I could see why you'd kind of, unless you were a complete diehard, I could see why you might be like, oh, well, fuck, I totally forgot that one. Like after you get to like the end of your top 50 or whatever, like, and then you're like, oh, well, where am I going to put them in over like, you know, Whippin' Boy or whoever who mm-hmm. did make a, maybe a bigger impression with albums like Heartworm and such and such. And like the ones that always kind of keep cropping up the same names that you see. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I wonder, is that the fault of the general listener or where the song's not quite that strong? like Well, I, I think there's loads of strong songs here, but I think you made a good point about genres because it's funny looking at this list. Um, you know, this is the middle of synthwave and, or whatever, new wave and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, like, the albums that have come through, like, you 2 couldn't be further from that. You know, this is totally dipped that pet, this, you know, the, this, that petrol emotion. <laughs> this petrol emotion uh, seems like this is more in the kind of world of, um, you know, My Bloody Valentine or, or, you know, Sonic Youth or whatever else than it is in all that kind of, you know, the stuff that Cry Before Dawn and the adventures and those kind of simple minds, you kind of buzz, but, you know, that was going on at the time. It doesn't see, it feels totally different from that. And so obviously, obviously just Van Morrison's the same and Sinead O'Connor is the same, but... I think there's great songs on it and I'm just surprised that I hadn't heard before. I mean, the song Big Decision, um, like that's 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 a hit. You know, I, I looked at it and it didn't make the, the UK top 40, you know. This is their most successful album. This got to number 37 and it's it's a shame because after this they they threw they they had a they had another album where uh, which was called End of the Century Psychosis Blues which is a brilliant name for an album. But um that was one where um John tried to do a thing which was um I read it that he said that he wanted to do something that was like a mixtape. So every song was different. Every, you know, track had a different influence, clearly, you know. But what ended up happening was it, it, it didn't sell, you know. And as a result, John left the band. It was a different lineup for the fourth album. Then the main songwriter left the band then. 
who I believe was Damien O'Neill who stepped up to be the main songwriter and then they changed again for the fifth album so it was kind of this was them at their kind of best I think you know if you you know this is when they were focused and on it you know and I think it's a great I think it's a great album it, 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 this is the kind of thing where I love telling people revisit this song, this album do you think I, like if if it was out later like a couple of years later it would have done better it's like when I hear it it sounds like it's in a kind of an interesting transitionary period for for music and the band you know it's like it's post undertones but the, as you said early on like it, it kind of there's elements of all these in, these bands that they influenced or they may have influenced later on maybe in the early 90s because like I, I listened to it this morning as well and it kind of it sounded really I felt like I'd heard it before yeah you well know, like kept the, kinda going. one of the songs big decision I mean blur all them royalties for that like it's yeah. absolutely <laughs> Like it's unbelievable. I can't remember the name of the song, but I think it's on Park Life, and it's really similar to it. Even the chorus, the way that you know the melodies of the chorus come in, and I was thinking like, how many of these bands, you know, I'd love love to go back through interviews and go, well, they were the band that you know inspired me, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah, I guess they were before their their time, I guess, with, with this one, you know. But yeah, the Blur reference is spot on. That was in my mind when I heard it. Um, it de- so and it definitely doesn't feel like 1987. No, 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 listen no, to no. it at all. I mean, if somebody said to me this was actually released in 1997, I wouldn't yeah. go. That's a strange thing to say. It was kind of feels, yeah, very maybe. true. Yeah, yeah. You wonder if they missed their moments. I mean, like it's you come come back to what you were saying, Karen, about like, you know, you didn't mention shoegaze as a genre, but like I would imagine like there was some definitely like a lot of pedals at, at play here. But at the same time, it's kind of like was it quite as strong as the contemporaries, or at least even like the kind of ones that would follow in that regard? And I don't think that that necessarily also runs. I mean, I think one of the acts on this list that we'll get to do feel like an also ran act to me, but these don't, and it does seem kind of strange. But then again, I, I, the idea of even you kind of mentioned there. I wonder what the reaction would have been at the time from even like diehards when it came to the idea of a mixtape as an album. Because now in 2017, you look at someone like Drake, who's a mega star around the world and has like plays on Spotify that are breaking records every other week. He brings out a, a quote-unquote playlist for a record, and you know people scoff at that. But he's so bulletproof in terms of his status that he can do that. I think for a kind of a jobbing indie band from Ireland who were maybe not, not all that concerned with being like the next U2 or the next big radio hit. I mean, I think it was such a, that, that, that's such a gamble. Like it's such a huge, huge gamble to take. And I guess that kind of brings into question, you know, how much of an artist are you? How important is integrity to you? I think like, it's cool that they did it, but at the same time, you can yeah. see why that would turn a lot of people off, I guess. I mean, like, okay, on the revisit, like we, we often have acts where sometimes they can feel like they were chewed up and spat out by the time that they're in. And our next act, I think, kind of fit into that bracket. This, and yet, yeah, it is angsty, as you might expect by the name of the act. This is Cry Before Dawn, and this is from Crimes of Conscience. Okay, so hailing from the mystical land of Wexford, this is Cry Before Dawn, short-lived enough act, although they did reform in 2010, and they're kind of still playing on their trade a little bit, it appears, but they only really had two albums in them before they split up in the early 90s, and I mean, it seems that we often kind of get records on the revisit, like in our top five, and like that might not fit 
per se and we might have some criticism of them and therefore you might be like well why are they even here but I feel like it's important to kind of document the time quite appropriately and there were a lot of acts like this with that kind of new wave new romantic kind of tinge stylings and some of them did feel like they were just died out because Rory you mentioned earlier on like the idea of being around at this time and the turn of a decade because there really is that kind of thing I found it in movies as well there's a real hard shift from like 89 1991 and like in terms of just tone I guess yeah, in terms of music production, I think. Yeah, like, music as, production. As you said, you know, you can. That's one thing I noticed when listening to uh, most of these albums. You can with the drum sound as well. It's just a, a music thing. You can you can kind of predict the the time period. Whereas with the petrol emotion, I couldn't really. But these guys, yeah. I could. You know. Yeah, I mean, these guys kind of play an interesting furrow. It's it's new romantic crooning meets Ellen Pipe space mastery. What could possibly go wrong? I mean, it's this kind of weird mix of like. <laughs> synth and you know kind of crooning vocals and then a bit of diddly eye irish and the strange thing is kind of they don't fully commit to it and even them falling even committing to it the way that they do is quite difficult i i found as a listen i mean like i'll always respect ambition and i'll always respect the band trying something different but i feel like you know we're going to talk about the joshua tree at some point because it's such a juggernaut of course and it's obviously on our list but it's not really fair to compare this record to that record directly. Like, it's quite a churlish thing to do. But what I would say is, you really kind of see how a band like U2 and the game that they were playing versus a band like this, and it's night and day. Like, I, I, I feel like for a band to start off in 1987, for this to be their debut, it's, you can feel, I, I know with the benefit of hindsight looking back, like, I mean, it sounds very easy to just say this, but like, it's almost like like they're like a carton of milk with like a built-in expiration date on it. There's just something about this where I'm like, this couldn't possibly sustain. And I don't think that it mm. did. I mean, like, you go into the first track of this, like the seed that's been sown, and it just has that like guitar. And I'm like, whoa, like this is really like first drafty or something. It, it's it it, it it it's a bit dated, I think. Yeah, but even then, I wonder if it was dated. Like, if you heard it on the day, you were like, especially if you look at the other albums on this list and the other ones that are available to your ears. It just feels like, you know, I don't know, like a school band at times or something. And then the strange part part is, like, there are strong melodies. There are well kind of written arrangements and good breaks. But overall, I don't know. There, there certainly are. I mean, I was 12 in 1987. I was going from primary school to secondary school. And while Babel didn't kind of enter my world as a 12-year-old, this album did because the track Gone Forever was everywhere on radio then, absolutely everywhere. I mean, it was just from these... Uh, in this kind of U2 world where the spotlight was shone on Ireland and Dublin and there were so many attempts to find um, a, a fully formed band and the spotlight kind of fell on, on Wexford briefly and this crowd um, were, were, were spotted there and yeah I mean you're completely right in that it's absolutely of its time it, it does feel despite the the, the 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 mass of stuff happening to the um, arrangements that it was terribly throwaway. I thought the front man's vocals were really pedestrian, kind of very little to um, to, to very little about him that that would make you want to revisit it. And it does seem um, quite ordinary. And and funnily enough, when I think back to kind of mid nineteen eighties bands from Ireland and and you people like Cactus World News that you know were straining for the big time from day one and I kind of felt with this crowd as well they they had barely left their bedrooms when they wanted to be playing Croke Park <laughs> 
and not in hurling because ironically the frontman wrote um, a song years later when Wexford won the All Ireland in 1996 in hurling. Um, but dancing at the crossroads. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I saw that, and I also he said, um, um, this the singer Brennan uh, Brennan Wade. He said that they had one of the things was that they were not connected to Dublin, so they connected better with the the, the, the people in the country in Ireland. You know, and I was thinking that was a funny. It was a funny thing to differentiate, you know, like to say that, like, I don't know, you, I, it's a funny thing to mark yourself as, you know, not connecting to the, the city people. And you saw doctors tried that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know? Well, I don't know. It's, just, it's like, why would you differentiate? I don't know. It just seems like a funny, a funny thing to differentiate your crowd, you know? People yeah. from the cities won't get us, but those people living in the countries and small houses. Would they turn out find the U2 of the country or something? <laughs> or? Yeah, it's a funny one. Yeah, yeah. But... Uh, I I hadn't heard it before, and someone I read, read and there isn't an enormous amount of stuff online, but I read one piece about it, and it said um, um, that they did have one, you know, they had two two main albums or whatever. I think they had four altogether, but there was two albums. And I'm not sure what the other one because a lot of times when they were touring later on, they only played the first two albums, so I'm not exactly sure what happened there. But um, they said um, the one thing that they did have was, you know. Uh, uh, genuinely a song in the Irish canon you know which was of music which has gone forever and I didn't know the song but then when I put it on it wasn't that I recognised it for the song that it was but I I recognised it almost that I can totally imagine it being huge if you know what I mean I, I, it just it was one of those songs which just sounds like it was always sort of there you know you just didn't know it was there you know and uh, that stood out to me and the, the, the second song Girl in the Ghetto which you know kind of a who did that remind you of? I don't uh, well it might be a simple mind it reminded me of the police a little bit okay like the yeah. police doing a real Englishman in New York type thing yeah that's them right the, no well that was Sting in his own alright hard to tell Alan Partridge joke <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah I mean like the it's country it's a little bit country it's a little bit pop it's a little bit rock it's got a trad influence it's kind of is it a mess well not that it's a mess it's just I think you see they never really committed to it. I think, I think that that's right. That it's kind of around. Not that it's all over the shop, but ah, it just it, it kind of is. But it's not even that. It's just that it doesn't. It just doesn't like. You know, it's not it's not Irish enough to be traditional. It's it's just it's not that it's all over the shop. It's just not really. It's just kind of nebulous. You know, it's just kind of a. Um, it's like a cloud all over the shop as opposed to it moving around the shop and then coming I, back to I think it point. feels like a kind of everything and the kitchen sink approach. It's like we go to studio, we've a bit of cash because we've got a, a major record deal and we're going to actually do everything we wanted to do on an album. We don't restrain ourselves at all. It just feels like it could have benefited from being pared back a little bit. Uh, Michael, did you go through the same whirlwind of emotions as Keir? Uh, Somewhat, yeah. <clears throat> it's hard to know. Uh, it's hard to know what to say about this album. I, you know, not to go off on a tangent, but I had a bit of a, you know, I had a bit of difficulty with this uh, this album listening assignment for a couple of reasons. Like, I don't really listen to a lot of new music, or you know, I don't listen to a lot of albums other than albums that I already know. You know, so I found listening to like four or five at once was pretty tiring welcome pretty to the world trying. of the, the music critic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> first I, world problems <laughs> remind me of like if you you know if you hear an album or you hear a song and you really like it and you follow it um, you kind of fall in love with it and you kind of it draws you in whereas if you're listening to four or five in a row it's like 
It's like if you're set up on four or five dates in one night. You are, the more dates you add, the less you enjoy each one. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I also felt a little bad listening to them because I, I, you know, I didn't enjoy a lot of them. What am I going to say? You know, <laughs> about no, I'd them. be I'd be with you on that. You especially, know, uh, you know, I don't mean to phrase that incorrectly, but especially Sinead O'Connor. Like, I did enjoy it by the end, but I kind of thought, like, what would Sinead O'Connor think of? some little shit like me sort of spouting off about how her albums aren't good or what, what do I know about life in the, in 1987? Um, I did by in the end enjoy the Sinead O'Connor album. This album, I mean, exactly what you're saying is correct. It, it's kind of, it's slightly pedestrian. The, the, it's very one note and the, the, the vocalist especially, but you know, we're all human, you know, <laughs> we're all trying our best. Uh, I kind of bit my tongue when you were talking about that petrol emotion, but I found it the hardest to get through. I know I'm going off format here. Oh as no, well. that's no, I found it. I found it difficult to listen to. Um, I did listen to all of it at least once. I have one note here, which is inside, which I actually thought was a good song, but it was, yeah, it was that one was. You know, all my caveats aside, that one was a, a tough listen. I think. Yeah. Well, I I think you know the one thing I did notice is I could imagine. I watched a couple of videos of them and I was wondering, would I be annoyed by them? Would, would they annoy me if they appeared on the TV? Do you know what I mean? If they if, I, if they appeared on whatever, you know, defunct TV channel that has music Just on Just that petrol emotion? Yeah, or quite that petrol emotion. That's what I was, you know, if, yeah. if I was watching, would I go, oh, these guys, you know, with their wacky, <laughs> you know, whatever. And the guy had a T-shirt that said bang on it and he was doing finger guns. And I was like, yeah, maybe they would annoy me. So I get that. <laughs> but I think you have to, you do have to kind of separate the artist from the art at times. From the bang t-shirt. Yeah. Well, it's sleeveless as well. Which oh, I wow. Was, yeah, it was, it was unfortunate. Guy thinks he's in the strokes, does he? <laughs> I agree with the whole 80 sound thing as well. I think, you know, because I was, I was only four years old, uh, so I don't really remember much of these albums at the time. Um, but, you know, co- coming back to it, you know, I think for someone like me, we get the best of the 80s. We get the sort of a distilled, fun version of, of the, you know, uh, David Bowie or, or other other sort of 80s things that have stood the test of time. And yeah, the stuff that lasts. Yeah, it kind of makes you realize that people in the 80s had to deal with the whole <laughs> range of awfulness that went on <laughs> then in terms, of, in terms of production and stuff. And I, I, I didn't think either That Petrol Motion or, uh, or Cry Before Dawn were, were well-produced albums. So, also, I guess, you know, albums sound different now. You know, the, I think these 80s albums sound particularly bad when you're listening on things like laptops and iPads, which I did a little bit. You know, they're they're made for older, they're made for speakers, which I'm sure people still listen to music on speakers, but kids don't, you know. Kids listen on laptops and... and speakers uh, on their phones. Yeah, yeah, on their phones and stuff. And I think these albums really fall down in that respect. They sound... None of the interesting stuff is in the frequency range. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's yeah. Like I'm with you on the having so many albums to listen to these days. I find like even if a friend that I really trust recommends an album to me, I have to give it time until I just ease into it and mm-hmm. get into it. You know, so like listening to all these albums at once for me was very mm. a bit of a task. You know, and this is I suppose an aside. This has nothing to do with the quality of the albums, and maybe I'm using it as a sort of a cushion for maybe that's the reason I didn't enjoy them. Well, I think if you don't choose an album to enter your life, you know, it, it's That's it. yeah, yeah. It's, it's always going to be different because the mm. thing about you want to like an album that you think you might like, you know, a lot of times. So these are like you're going to them kind of cold. So it's yeah, it's, interesting. it's a different world. Like, for example, I, like 
and I don't mean anything negative about Van Morrison, but I can't imagine ever going, oh, I'd love to listen to a bit of Van today. You know, I just, it's just not me, my thing. So yeah. me listening to him is like, it's going on a, a Celtic soul journey, you know? Well, wait till you listen it to me talk it. about it. <laughs> well, yeah, the stack of albums thing is admittedly quite daunting, but as John says, try being a music critic for a couple of weeks, lads. You have it easy. Yeah. Is this a pay job? I'll take it. <laughs> and at the risk of uh, incurring Sinead O'Connor's wrath, here she is. This song is called Mandinka, and I've got a feeling that you've heard it before. So, that's Mandinka, massive hit, uh, massive household song by a massive household name. Comes from The Lion and the Cobra. Michael, you did like this album. Um, <coughs> let's, not, let's not go nuts. <laughs> <laughs> no, you I, are going to get killed, sir. <laughs> you, you set me up there, I had to... Uh, no, I, I, uh, I had never really listened to Sinead O'Connor before. Um, and, you know, I, obviously I knew who she was. I'm sure everybody knows who she is. And... Uh, yeah, it took a couple of listens, and I, I did I did really get into it, and it kind of you you could you know I could tell straight away that there was, um, uh, I don't say it carefully, but there's more. It, it was obvious there was more depth than maybe some of the other albums on the list. Although I, I thought at the beginning it wasn't maybe maybe it just wasn't my taste, but I really got I kind of got into it more as it went on. Um, not exactly sure what to what to say. Uh, Overall, um, yeah, it was a bit of a journey for me to to getting to like Sinead O'Connor a little bit. What did you think, I mean, in in terms of this being a debut album for somebody who was just 20 years old when it was released? It's got got an enormous amount amount of depth and it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't smack of somebody just trying to be a popular artist. You know, there's, Mm. there's interesting stuff in there. Um, I think when she tries to be a popular artist, like that song, I Want Your Hands On Me, I think that's. I think that uh, that was. I just thought that was awful. But uh, on the, on the, on on the next album, I do not want what I haven't got. There's also two kind of singly songs shoehorned into it, and they sound they sound totally. You know, she just sounds like she's operating in her own buzz. And if you, tr- whenever anyone tried to make her into a pop artist, sort of, you know, like a more standard artist, she I think kind of recoiled sounded, against it. Anyway. It just didn't. I don't know? think it worked. Yeah. You know, didn't really didn't realize she was so young. When she mm. made but she was album. also yeah. heavily pregnant. Heavily pregnant, yeah. you know, no which is mad. Like you know, obviously it's going to make, it's going to put into kind of stark relief a lot of your the yeah. life that you have or whatever. I think it's interesting that a lot of people kind of look at Sinead O'Connor and kind of have this revisions history almost of her like becoming really mad spiritual at some point but it was always there I mean you go back to this first record and like it's there they like the the album title itself is taken from a Sam and yeah. there's moments I mean even like Enya shows up for like a spoken word intro that is almost like her speaking in tongues the angel Enya descended from the he- the heavens to, uh, yeah, exactly. to appear yeah, on yeah, the album yeah. um, I'm sure booking that studio time was interesting but um, I mean it's it's a very spiritual record, and I, I think there's an awful lot going on. I'm, I, I think it's quite good. I, I, I think in certain places it's great. I mean, Mandinka, like as a straight up, even if if you strip back to just like the surface pop and what it does, is relentless. And especially I think for the time, like it was just, it's, it's just you know, you can see that released as like a single today, like no hassle. Like it's, oh, it's, it's a great song. It's a, 
That's a song in the Irish canon. Yeah, yeah, it is. No no question. It's like stripped of all fat. It's just kind of so purposeful. And her vocals throughout are like she's aware of what a great singer she is and she wants us to know what what a great singer she is. Uh, Just as on a comical aside, years and years later, I was mates with a a, a chap that was was married to her briefly and I kind of got to know her a bit and I used to call over to see them and she would, in the course of conversations or whatever, kind of step away a little and just start singing and wow. in her kitchen. And the voice just was unbelievable. Like it was kind of hair in the back of the neck stuff at 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning or something. Wow. But to, to think back to a young woman barely out of her teens and, as you, and, and, and pregnant as well. And just to be so confident in her own ability and what she wanted to say. Um, and while I think while some of the tracks are very skippable, to be honest, I was yeah. gonna say like does yeah. does Mandinka like sonically just stand out a bit too much from everything else? Even even like mm-hmm. the the transition from the first track, which is a nice vocal kind of hymn kind of vibe to it, and then Mandinka just slaps you in the face. Yeah, but there's a weird start that song, Jackie, Jackie or whatever. Yeah. Just like yeah, yeah. I I I as I say I, I had a little bit of trouble with it at the start. What I found interesting because I came to it completely fresh. Um, you know, I didn't know anything about the history of it or anything. I, you know, I thought Mandinka was a good song. I thought Troy was excellent. Troy, yeah. I thought it really mm-hmm. stuck out. And then I only, I think I read afterwards, it was the first single, was it? I believe so. Because, it, like, yeah. it's not, again, you know, if, you, if you're, if you're trying to be a pop star or something, it's not the one you'd pick, but it's the best song. And maybe the, maybe there's a lesson there for, for the artists and bands of, of today. You know, it, it's it's just much more... Uh, attention grabbing or something. I agree with what you were saying about the vocals. They really are excellent and because I'd never really listened to her in depth before. I never really got that. Um, I didn't like all the, the Irishy stuff. Again, I didn't... Uh, it's not something I... I, uh, I think that I was really a thing of its time to. again, though, wasn't it? Yeah. The, kind of, the Celtic... There is a bit mm. of that in all of these albums. I mean... It's kind of overdoing it on the Celtic tree, thing, yeah. Oh, it's on the Joshua Tree as well. I mean... It's on Van Morrison, too. Every U2 album has a degree of that, I think. Yeah, but I think, uh, what? Well, uh, yeah, I mean the Sinead O'Connor Irishy stuff. I wonder <coughs> she's always had that as well in in her, in her kind of in but, her tunes. But I just think that particular era, because I I wouldn't go so far as to say that Dublin was was the Seattle or Bristol or Manchester of its time. I wouldn't say that at all. But for a lot of the record companies that were spending money here and looking at emerging artists here, they they liked the idea of Irish musicians selling their wares to the world and there probably was a bit of pressure to to kind of Make ram that home. Yeah. yeah. And that that notion of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Which which now uh, thirty years on feels very dated. Um but I think less so on this album than on some of the others. Um, and mainly because, for me because the vocals are so foregrounded and potent. One of the things about this, though, I did think was that a lot of... The, she's going for it with the lyrics and what the songs are about. You know, Troy is based on um, um, a Yeats poem, um, you know, but it's about an affair. You know, Jackie is obviously about loss and very direct. Mandika is apparently, you know, personal experiences... She read the book Roots, which the famous yeah. television show was derived from, and basically, whenever she was asked, or at least in one interview, when she was asked about what the song means, she would just would tell people to read Roots, like, and then. But this is it, like, so like, she, she's, you know, and like, Troy is sprawling, like it's like a poem, Hugely, yeah, you, you know, hugely. so like, like that's 
you know that if someone came in, if someone released an album like that now, you'd pay attention. Hundred percent. Yeah. You know, like this is this is she's she this is all the things about Sinead O'Connor that she went on to do musically. A lot of them are rep- are here already. You know, and and it's great. You know, the the passion, the the attitude, the um, the sort of. Um, I guess that the mixes of influences from political and you know history and poetry or whatever else it, it's all here and a little bit of Irish as well that, that connects it like so she came kind of formed you know this was this was her and then she got better at it and she wrote maybe she you know had some better songs or whatever but it, this is like she she arrived at fully this point. formed yeah yeah this is the thing I mean it goes back to what like, what you're saying it goes back to what John was saying in terms of just the relentlessness of this and like the how she has that voice and she wants you to listen to it. I mean, I think out of all the artists that we've had in the revisit, like, I mean, whether you love Sinead O'Connor or whether you can't tune into the frequency or not, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find an artist that, like, the the courage of her convictions, she meets them, like, 110% every time. And it's a case of, like, you're either with me or you're against me. This is me completely. And that's why it's not that she gets away with, you know, having world music the world music that she has you, she clearly believes in it she clearly mm. tapped into that it's not a cynical move and I mean it's she's almost like an anti-pop star but at the same time she was too much of a presence to ignore and I think that that comes through as you say on this on this debut offering I mean yeah I agree there are some tracks here that you could live without and I think one of them actually ended up in A, a Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4 The, the Dream Master I saw that too which uh, and you know like it's been a long time since I've watched that, uh, that, that amazing horror franchise but I can't recall it in there I want to say it was in there because some studio executive liked it and maybe it's in a party scene where someone gets murdered or something I don't know but mm. you know yeah it, it's a weird touchstone of a record with all these kind of weird jumping off points um, you know read Roots while watching Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4 but at the same time when she hits she hits and you know I'd say revisit this album for Mendinka alone when I when I put it on first I think Jackie starts the or Jackie O or whatever you know, Jackie yeah. uh, starts the album I put it on first and my girlfriend called from the other room uh, what is that awful noise because <laughs> she's British as you can tell from the <laughs> from the uh, impression but uh yeah, it's pretty challenging, but I have to say I did gain an appreciation, a genuine appreciation for Sinead O'Connor. Very good. Uh, also kind of challenging and cinematic in its own right is uh, Van Morrison, Poetic Champions Compose, which kicks off like this. Yeah, kind of appropriate that I've been watching a lot of Twin Peaks lately because that is a hell of a way to open a record. Just have your mad film noir saxophone and it's not even like 30 second bed. It's pretty much the track. My notes here, I've got Spanish Steps, the first track, and in block capitals, two and a half minutes sax solo. (laughs) (laughs) Is it everything that you wanted and more, Rory? That is pretty much all I wanted. I wish I could open my next album with that. But why don't you? I think I will. I think I think, <laughs> I think that's first. you know Van will do it. How much does Van charge? Is the, is the only question. Like to preface this, I went to two crazy metal gigs over the weekend, and then to listen to this, 
really just even things out. It was really, <laughs> really relaxing. It was a nice counterpart to the, the craziness that I, I've been listening to. You were hungover on your couch. You can tell the listener. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was hungover on my couch. Is this a good hangover couch album? It's a good hangover couch album. It's a good cycling um, around Sandy Mount album, which I did as well. And it's a good, it's a good album to, to have on at work. I listen to a lot of just calming music for concentration when I'm working. And I've ha- I had this on a lot. Um, the thing about it, it kind of, the tracks tend to just run into each other. Everything sounds mixed together a bit too much. You don't know, you don't notice when certain tracks finish and certain tracks start. There's a couple of in- instrumentals in there. It, it opens with an instrumental. I think the first, or sorry, the second half starts with an instrumental mm. and it closes with an instrumental. It sounds like Van Morrison just going, but I don't give a fuck. I'm Van Morrison. I'll do what I want. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, like the, <laughs> yeah. Do you think he's ever said, I'm Van Morrison, I don't give a fuck? Every day. Every day. I'd say, <laughs> yeah. I'd say, he, I'd say he wakes up shouting that, to be honest. Um, my friend Colin Regan, who co-hosts uh, the regular No Encore podcast with me, has, uh, I think it's from an American, I think it's a baseball or basketball thing, but he has like a thing above his door, which says, play like a champion today. And every time he leaves his door, starts his day, like he slaps it. And I assume Van Morrison has the exact same thing, except it says, I'm, I'm Van, Van Morrison, Morrison. <laughs> and, and I don't give a fuck. I'll do what I want. Because, I mean, like, the balls to open up this record in that fashion. I mean, like, you look at some of the kind of the critical notices from the time when they were particularly sniffy. Uh, a guy from The Village Voice uh, said, and I quote, uh, It's dull but, t- but tasteful dinner music, because in his current spiritual state, Morrison doesn't much care about interesting. He just wants to roll on, undulating from rhythmic hill to melodic dale. There's a lot of that talk of his spiritual state during this. Like, I, I read the, um, you know, even the, the track names and stuff, and it all sounds quite dark. You know, you've got, um, what is it? I forgot that love existed. Uh, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. I, I saw that and I was like, whoa. Um, but sometimes he doesn't feel like yeah. that, which is positive. <laughs> he forgot that love existed, then he remembered, you know. But I looked it up and um, he said, um, well, yeah, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. He says... It's Mother Ireland whom Van is missing and his world-weary vocals are like sobs of pain. And yet, like Morrison is quoted during this time um, period as saying that psychologists will tell you that artists have to be in a state of despair before they produce great work. But I don't think that. In my case, I know it doesn't create better work. I produce better work if I'm content. And and, in fairness, someone like you, which is, um, I, I guess, one of the more celebrated of his of his songs is is almost certainly written in that period of contentment um it's probably the only song that i would have named from this album before listening to it because like a lot of very significant figures in the late 60s and early 70s i think he had a pretty poor 80s um and this album um yeah it's i mean i kind of agree with that review to a degree in that um, it does sound quite pleasant in the background. It does feel uh, like know, a background music, right? Really it doesn't. Does, yeah, it could be. It could be called background music. In the first line, on uh, like I mean, in the first line on Wiki, Wikipedia, it says uh, it's it's adequate mood mood music. Adequate it's, mood. Yeah, but it's, it's, in, it's in the first line. It's like I, I, like uh, I couldn't this believe it. The guy that wrote Astro Weeks, sure. adequate. But yeah, often? but that's the thing. Yeah, he wrote Astro Weeks, and therefore at that point he could do whatever he wanted. Really, like I mean, yeah. like it's kind of like once you make a record of that level it's kind of like well you know cool whatever but, else you but, do but this is, is a 17th album. 17th album and Astral Weeks uh, was uh, 1968 I think so this was obviously you know was it 21 was that 21 years before this wow you, you uh, know what I mean like that's like and I think he's on his like 36th album now 
Yeah, like it's insane. I mean, this came just after No Guru, No Method, No Teacher, which was the album. Which is a better it. album. Which uh, apparently, be, I mean, you know, like, with someone who has about 36 albums, I mean, like I'm interested to know where does it sit in the, in, in, in the overall scheme of things. So I went and I had a look at, you know, what, what is you know, the Guardian thing of his best 10 albums. Yeah. And this wasn't in it. Um, and nothing after this was in it. I'd never um, heard of this until. Yeah, but nothing after this album. Everything, all, all the, the the top ten were b- before this. You know, Verdant Fleece and and uh, um, and obviously you know Moon Dance and all that kind of stuff. You know, and then I went to uh, there's another one on Nerve dot com and they had uh, his thirty six albums rated and this album was right in the middle. It was like you know whatever right in the middle is seventeen or yeah. twenty or something like that. And um, and then there was another another thing again talking about which album was. So it's funny. This is very much. It's the middle of his career. It's also, you know, um, people who know Van Marsen would say that this is in the middle of his uh, of the the quality of the album. So it's it's not the greatest album he released. It's not the worst album he released. You know, it's not the most cutting. It's not uh, you know cutting edge. It's it's not the the, the strangest one or whatever. So it's kind of. Uh, you know, it kind of occupies a, a funny place. You know, so it kind of feels inoffensive. Like but to use one word, that kind of it just—it's hard to be passionate about it, or to hate it, or to feel anything. Which is a terrible f- thing yeah, to say you about know? someone like him. You know, I mean, the following year he worked with um, the Chieftains and yeah. he kind of did something a bit more interesting, slightly outside his comfort zone to a degree. But this, and and I have to be honest, a lot of his his recent albums have been off that kind of one note template, beautifully played, kind of jazzy stuff. It's pristine production, but you kind of don't want to go back to it. Yeah, m- well, most of my notes are on like the level of the sheer level of musicianship here is is off the scale. But he works with incredible musicians, but yeah. a lot of times uh, I was reading he tries to have the first or second take. But what happens if you play? I think in your first or second take, you're playing by instinct. You know, you mm. you play the thing that you know, and so what ends up happening is people, you know. You know, there's a thing in School of Rock where he goes, oh, "I'll take a, I'll take a riff after the second course, and then maybe we'll do a riff on the way yeah, out." You know, yeah, yeah. and it sounds like, you know, they have a little bit of a musical interlude before the course, and you know, the the, the yeah. structures are all quite normal, mm. and you know, something like a two and a half minute <laughs> jazz, so uh, you know, a sax solo, great, you know, more the the odd stuff, you know. That's um, it. One of my notes is uh, just casually virtuosic. Is that a word? Virtuosic. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and also yeah. like putting casually in front of it is maybe maybe we can get Rory onto the old music critic game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, was, that was nice. I mean, this I'm is that, I must say. definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> consider it stolen, mate. Yeah. I mean, like, I would say, I mean, like, this is your classic fall under inessential. Like, you know, if you're putting together like a massive listening guide for like a, for a heritage artist, you're just like, you know, yeah, you don't need this one, but it's kind of nice. I found it kind of nice. I mean, like, I, I do think that you know, and especially kind of to go back to my what, what Michael was saying, where it's like, if you have a rake of things to listen to. It didn't have to focus too much on this one, and I think there's a lot to be said for albums like that sometimes, where it's just like, you know what, I've got I've got a lot of stuff to do. I'm running out of time. That five minute jazz solo is kind of fun, like you know, like but this is terrible though. I mean, we're all we're all being as bland with our <clears> reviewing <throat> of it as you know the people have said the album is, and it just you know. It's inoffensive, you know, it's a bit passive. I'm eking like, out the positives here, Kurt. You know, but you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like... I think adequate is probably the worst thing adequate, you could say. It's awful, <laughs> isn't it? Like, you know, 
I liked it. I thought it was good. Yeah. There you I go. I thought it was inoffensive, but uh, maybe I'm getting to an age where I don't want to be offended. <laughs> was your girlfriend uh, offended by in the next room? No, she was. She was. Uh, she didn't say anything about that. Okay. So that's a good sign. <laughs> she was going to sleep that stage. Yeah. The, the acid that's test. A, like, I mean, in, all in all, I've had a pleasant experience. Pleasant is it? Pleasant even a bad <laughs> thing to say, isn't <laughs> it? Yeah. Van Morrison. It sounds like you're on your you're on your deathbed at, <laughs> at, at 115 years of age, and to say all in all, I've had a nice, pleasant time. Yeah. Fuck you, I'm Van Morrison. I do it all again. <laughs> but if you if you think back to songs he released in the early seventies, things like TB Sheets that are so unbelievably great on every level, and nothing here comes close to it. Like they're so far off that, despite the gorgeous musicianship and the production and and the composition and all that, like it's so far off that high watermark. Um, and and it's I, I just find it hard ultimately to 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 recommend it. Well, here's the thing: is 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 it, uh, is it because he has 36 albums that this album si- do you know what I mean are you judging him because he has done better stuff like does it stand on its own it's impossible not to do that though yeah, when you think yeah. of somebody of, uh, as celebrated as that um, like to be honest I don't think we'd be talking about it anyway if it was a debut album from somebody I mean it, it would never sound like it. this could never be a debut album anyway but mm. I don't think we'd, it would have lasted the test of time um, really and I have to say um, like Rui mentions the, just the, the title even just not being aware of it I had to double check the exact wording of the title I had, had faint memories of what it was called but it wasn't one that would just jump out at all well, apparently he wanted to write a jazz album so he wrote I think he wrote half the jazz album yeah, it was meant and to then be he said yeah. you came in to, to practice the next week and said no I've got some songs I'm mm. going to do you know um, but it's funny because if I think there's if you take out the the cover and the three jazz songs of the other songs there's a couple of kind of fairly skippable ones and excuse me there's um, there's someone like you which is obviously the one that's been on, on you know Bridget Jones diary and all that kind of stuff so I, I don't know yeah I think I think it's a bad thing I think it's a bad thing that an album is incredibly passive I think I don't think that's a positive I think it's a good it's good that lots of people anyone could listen to it it's good to be liked by a lot of people but I don't know if it's I just think that's just. Do you know what I mean? Do you disagree with me? Yeah. <laughs> do I, I just don't know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be liked by a lot of people, but if that's what you're going for, if you want to, like, you know, if you want your album to sound nice and people to like it, like that's one approach. However, you prefer the that petrol emotion approach. Of I do. Yeah. Not a lot of people liking it and not sounding good. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. All right, Kier, how about four mad lads with their eye on the world t- to finish us off this week? This is you too. So that's Bullet the Blue Sky from U2. Uh, household song, I believe. I've said that already, but I'll say it again because it really kind of is. John, the Joshua Tree. Yeah, I mean, it casts such an extraordinary shadow 
on Irish music and Irish culture. And it's it's a task in itself to revisit these songs with, with new ears. It really is quite quite tricky because particularly the first four um, are so indelibly kind of part of the culture that it's it's impossible to rehear them almost. Um, but of course this year there's no getting away from them because of the Croke Park show and they're in North America at the moment and they're playing the album in its entirety including um, Red Hill Mining Town which they never played before the, this tour which surprised me because it's a very melodic anthemic um, song. Um, and I like I think it's the most emblematic U2 album for sure but I would argue that The Unforgettable Fire and Octoon Baby are better albums than this one but this is the one that sold 25 million copies this is the one that put them on the front cover of Time Uh, this is the one that ensured their longevity despite what Bono said at the end of the 80s saying we're going to chop down the Joshua Tree and dream it all up again and of course dreaming it all up again meant going to Berlin and Octoon Baby and, uh, and, and, and all the rest with Zeropa and Pop um, but it is interesting to go back to it 30 years on, particularly when Edge talks about the fact that, OK, we are touring a Heritage album for the first time, um, but it does feel like it's got something to say for the world we live in today. And I don't think that's just a throwaway comment. I think it's kind of true. It, 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 particularly the US was in a bad place in the in the in in 1987, and it's in a very very bad place um, in 2017. Um, but despite it, it it described so much as an American album, and Anton Corbin's um, imagery evokes the the great uh, desert of, of of America. Some of the most powerful songs have nothing to do with America. Like "Running to Stand Still" is a very personal song about, I suppose, the the, the their backgrounds in a way, um, or certainly Bono's upbringing, where you could see the Ballymun Flats through through the window of his of his house and. Even though he wasn't part of an impoverished upbringing, so to speak, I think he has he sensed it and and how damaged Dublin in the mid eighties was. I remember writing about this before that there was a horrendous heroin problem in the city back then. Um, you had marches on the doll from concerned residents keen to try to eradicate drug pushing. There was a massive problem in the city. We tend to forget that now. And in many respects, the album captures that and captures Red Hill Mining Town captured the um, the strife in the UK, uh, particularly with, with Thatcher's policies when it came to the miners. Um, it was inspired by the riots of 1984. Um, but ultimately, when you think of the, the early tracks in this album, um, you're thinking of America and the bright lights and a band that are absolutely going for the big time um, and, and nobody will stop them. Well, it, apparently, I don't know if this is a thing they said afterwards or um, or, or was, actually was part of it, but they said it, they wanted the album to represent the struggle between real America versus mythical America, which I think is, I don't know, it's a, that's for you too. It's very a big, it's a big statement. It's ambitious. It's least, ambitious, yeah. you know. Um, but whereas then you have Mothers That Disappeared, which I think is about, um, um, you know, mothers talking about their children, which which had been, you know, taken off them, um, who were by the Argentinian and Chilean, Chilean government, you know, stuff like that. Like, um, you know, 
it's it's very cohesive. It's very together as an album. It works. The sounds are, I think the drums and the bass never sounded better, um, especially in the first couple of songs, um, which I suppose are the, that's when people talk about this album, they do talk about, you know, the first kind of three or four songs um, most of the time. Um, and it's powerful, you know, it's it's really, really strong. And uh, I, I listen to the remaster, I suppose, now, because you, you can't get the original online or whatever. But, you know, it, I wonder whether it's, it sounded as good as that, but it sounds brilliant now, you know. Uh, even songs that maybe wouldn't be the kind of well-known songs like In God's Country or whatever are also, you know, sonically very, I don't know, the palette that they, they, they worked from was just very clear. It, it was, you know... They just knew what they, it's like they knew exactly what they were doing, you know. They they, they made very few missteps, um, and the, and and with people like Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno, I mean, they had, um, they had people that absolutely um, knew their craft, knew how to make things sound really good, um, and Eno had really done that on the Unforgettable Fire, and I mean, it's funny they they wanted um, Connie Plank. Um, originally to do Unforgettable Fire and he famously said I can't work with that singer uh, so Brian Eno was their second choice and it, it actually um, it, it proved fruitful for, for a long time but it certainly you, you can hear um, the, the, the the large wads of money that went into the making of this album as well in the studio I, I think Steve Lillywhite has a stamp on it as well because yeah. I mean they kind of went to him not so much at the eleventh hour but like certainly as the last part of the process for him to kind of shake it up a bit and make them more singly in places which apparently if you know rumors are to be believed infuriated Lanois and you know and the track listing itself which I mean like all that you can't leave behind which would follow thirteen years later we're looking at a very front loaded record here and I mean granted that's probably because the first three or four tracks are just mega hits. But like it does kind of have an impact on the second half of the record. But apparently, uh, Kirsty McCall is responsible for this. They couldn't decide on the yeah, track. Yeah, she wrote the track. I, I, that's one of those, you know, is it apocryphal? Know. Yeah, I don't like, know. Did it really happen? Know, but but it's it's cited a lot. I mean, like, if it's true, apparently the lads were like, okay, we want where the streets have no name to open this, and we want Mothers of this period to close this. But it works, I think, in that respect. You but know? we can't figure out the rest of it. So but the we- the weirdest thing is, though. I mean, I, mean, I know Spotify is only out the last couple of years, but. Um, I think that uh, I have it written down here. Hold on one second. Something like uh, the first three songs are, you know, 55 million plays, 155 million plays, 65 million plays. And then it's then it's like three million, three million, two million. Do you know, do you know what I mean? It's like the, the three songs at the start. So it's eight, sorry, 15 million, 89 million and 149 million, the first three tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're into the fours and the threes and the twos. You know, it's. That the, when people talk about the album, they talk about the single. You know, that's what they're. That's what people are now are going back to listen to those behemoths. You know, do, at the people, start. do people get fatigued by how front loaded it is? Maybe. Well, there's a lot of great. So I mean, there's, there's only one, one track called "Trip Through Your Wires" is bizarrely like the hottest flares. I thought, <laughs> but uh, apart from that, like you know, there's lots of good melodies. There's lots of you know. Like there's lots of good songs. What is it? If it's disappeared, is one of the best songs on the album, and that's the last. I think Exit is fantastic. I think Exit sounds very early U2. But I think it sounds like it's got the DNA for Zoo Station on Octone Baby. I think it's got that weird kind of industrial thing where like it it almost feels unfinished. It almost feels like someone has interrupted them in the the middle of a practice session, but they were like, you know, I put that in. It's odd, and I think it really kind of has its place. Uh, That was uh, yeah. That that and Trip Shooter Wires, I, I wasn't a fan of, but the rest of them, I thought were just a fo- like I know it sounds weird like maybe this is looking back on it I think but it does sound very 
determined, very focused, very together. And you know, I think this is them at their best. You know, Bono never looked better. You know, than he did then. You know, it's <laughs> debatable. <laughs> you know, like, but he was like, you know, had the earrings. He just, I think there was a confidence and I think a swagger to him at that point. He just couldn't do anything wrong. And I think. I don't know. I think I think a lot of no, the, man, it's the shaved head '90s phase. That's no, you. but the '90s phase, I think, was a certain amount of being hyper aware of themselves. Whereas at this point, I don't. I think it was just pure confidence. You know, I think like, they're always hyper aware of themselves. But a record like this made the world hyper aware of them. Sorry, John. I think this is the equivalent, almost, of the, the whole the notion of the great American novel, where somebody who has written a, a number of books and is acclaimed kind of purposely sits down and says, I am going to write uh, a, a, a huge statement kind of thing, a Jonathan Franzen type moment where you go, OK, this is called The Corrections and this is a huge deal and this will change the game. And I think in 1986, they were thinking, OK, next year we're going to release an album that we will show that we are one of the most significant bands in the world. I mean, years later, you two kept banging on about, you know, applying for the job of being the world's biggest rock band. And, and I, you know, again, I, I interviewed Paul McGuinness years ago and he said, like, one of the things that appealed to him when he first met them was how incredibly determined Bono was to be big. Like there were, there were, there was no, um, they were never hiding their light under a bushel at all. It was always we want to be the biggest band in the world. It wasn't necessarily we want to be the best band in the world. It was we want to be the biggest band in the world. And this is an attempt to be the biggest band in the world. And for a while, it worked. Well, like um, there's a really interesting thing which I think, I think says a lot. Um, the Edge brought a demo along to the band which was for Where the Streets Are For No Name and he said that he was going to write or he's trying to write the ultimate U2 live song you know and I, th- I don't know there's just something in that statement which is like the the fact that they knew themselves so much or they knew what they wanted so much or they, they were so I don't know just that determination of focus again you know I'm, like I miss the I miss the sound they had. Like you, early on, you mentioned the, how the the drums and the bass sound so well in in that album, and uh, and they do like the, the way they sound now. I'm always saying, look, just strip it down, get the backing tracks out, raise the raise the rhythm section again in the mix. You know, I'm I'm, I'm I listen to it like I'm you know I'm very nostalgic for that sound with you too. I think this this would be my most listened to you two album. Might not be my favorite. But I, I listen to it now in a really weird way. Like I listen to it as two albums, like the first and the second half. You know, I listen to the as I said with listener fatigue and stuff like that. You know, I listen to the first half when I'm in a certain mood, and then I'll stop and I'll listen to the second half. You know, maybe a week later or something like that. It's rare that I listen to it fully through, if you know what I mean, these days. But maybe that's how you know how accessible music is as well. You know, I, I just kind of listen, stop, come back to it later. Well, that would definitely, with records, that would definitely yeah. happen. You know, like side B and side A, which side do you want to listen to? Well, that's to? it, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that I don't think that's that, that mental, you know. Yeah, I, I guess it goes back to Van Morrison as well, you know, going how the, the sides, the, there are the sides, you know, I haven't listened to music like that in so long, I, I suppose, un, until I started buy, buying vinyl recently, again. But, um, yeah, I do, I, I just, it sounds so well recorded now, especially with the remasters, I think, and I do miss that U2, from my, in my opinion anyway. You know, I just love that stripped down sound. I'd agree. I mean, I, I think the surprising thing about this is that it doesn't sound overblown. I mean, yeah. as John says, it's designed to be gigantic, and it is gigantic. It's huge. But, like, I was surprised at, like, little details. Like, at some points it sounds like Larry Mullen's snare isn't even turned on. 
and I was like, that's kind of cool. I was like, you know, like, like, like that's not over overdone. It's not a gigantic crashing marching band snare. It's not turned up like Lars Ulrich's snare drum. It's yeah, in anger, which I quite like, but you know, I understand that people don't. The drums in um, Bullet the Blue Sky. Mm. That opener, that's one of the best Phenomenal. sounding. That is absolutely snares. brilliant, and the people would try and, and uh, yeah, like there's lots of stuff that I, I'm, you know, just just to put a bit of balance on it. Like as I said, you know, some of the stuff I think is a bit. The second half of the album, I think some of it is, is you know, it's okay. You know, it's yeah. not terrible, and I, I don't necessarily go back and listen to it. Um, my cousin was an insanely kind of. Uh, um, fascinated U2 fan and uh, used to walk past his house and he had a huge Joshua tree in the window so when I was growing up and I didn't know nothing and I you know yeah. before I was well before I was buying or choosing at music you know U2 were the the band that I was supposed to everyone was supposed to love because they were the, the biggest band in the world and um, he's still a massive U2 fan and when I was going to college I would go over to his house in Finglas and he had like imagine you know if you were making a film about a, a guy who was obsessed with videos um, there would be piles of videos like towers of videos everywhere. there was towers of videos everywhere you know yeah. coffee cups on them and stuff and they were all U2 recorded here recorded here you know and um, you go oh, you know what? look at this this is Zoo you know Zoo TV and whatever Sarajevo whatever and so U2 were always just this thing but I, I just never just never I just never really got it and then you know, kind of pop came out, and that was around my my time that I was buying stuff, and I was I, I liked that, you know. And this always seemed, even then, the Joshua Tree seemed was was this kind of you know overblown, kind of you know terribly arrogant or whatever kind of album. I never really gave it a chance, but it was only later, like you know, when I don't know friends of mine went to college, and then you you know you two kind of had a bit of a resurgence, I think around two thousand two, two thousand three, that kind of thing. It felt like to me anyway. When they were kind of cool again or something and uh, then the Joshua Tree you know came back in to focus again people were talking about that and I listened to it ag- then again and um, then that was when I listened to it and I thought it was I thought it was great but it's I don't know it's never connected with me as much as say you know like Acting Baby did I suppose yeah you know. just curiously uh, as a as a singer in a in a four piece band from Dublin do you feel the the weight of you two at all like culturally, the no. kind of that shadow that's there. No, everyone, wherever, every, wherever we go in the world, um, outside Ireland, people always ask you about you too. Um, Is that annoying? No, I think you always just, you know, always just say something respectful or whatever else. I mean, you can argue all you want about how they've been terrible but they've obviously been good you know <laughs> tons of bands got signed because of you two people knew pe- people who don't even know where Ireland is knew you who you who you two were you know nowadays everyone just talks about uh, Seamus from WWE and Conor <laughs> <laughs> McGregor so, <laughs> so it's different again but you know um, well, what do you think uh, well full disclosure this is the one I listened to the least because uh, I figured <laughs> everyone would have something to say about it and I was right so <laughs> <laughs> problem solved <laughs> Uh, I, I uh, it's pretty shameful, but I listened to the start of it and I didn't listen to all of it. But it's outstanding, you know the the start of it. <laughs> <laughs> so it is no, front loaded. You agree? <laughs> That's good because you heard you heard the best bits. Then, so. No, I mean it, it's it's you know it's it's you know it's head and shoulders and more above above the other the other albums on the list. You know, there's a great quote, and I wonder how true it is. It says the Joshua Tree made you two into international rock stars and established both the standard they would always have to live up to and an image they would forever try to live down. I mean, the likes of Pop and Zeropa, 
Do they feel like kind of because you know like they wanted this? They wanted to be the biggest band in the world. This album made them the biggest band in the world, and then obviously they went off and became mad experimental for a while. And they've kind of been trying to retrace that Joshua Tree gold in the last few albums. I would argue. I mean, I would argue that like there hasn't been a, a, a particularly interesting U two record since Pop, and that's a flawed album. But like you know, I hold it hope. I mean, they're still massive juggernaut of a band. Like this, like they still do it live. You know, like to a so strong I they, degree. I still think there are songs that are remarkable, though. I mean, the the acoustic version of every breaking wave is fantastic. Is yeah. unbelievable. That is brilliant. Um, you it's know, the, song in the last yeah. ten years. Yeah. yeah, I mean, really, really special. But, but, I, I think, but just on every breaking mm-hmm. wave, you know, they, that was written by the pop songwriter. You know what I mean? That, mm-hmm. And like, like, you know, I I I often wonder if you're talking about. You two were trying to write the chorus of that song was written by a pop songwriter, so therefore, are, you know, is it can you you know? I don't know if you two ever. I don't know. If can they, they do it? They don't, need, they don't need that, you know. I mean, but it, what that is is, I think, a certain amount of their ambition is saying, well, we let's get back into relevancy. Let's get a song on the radio again. So these are needs must, you know. Um, but I think that's a little bit of a lack of confidence. I would I would look at that, or maybe I'm wrong, but. Do you know what I mean? Like, also, I think it's maybe it's a freshing up. Maybe I don't know. I, just, all, I, I think it's also a bit holding on to your throne, especially when so many kind of, you know, rivals or contemporaries have have come along and usurped you to a degree, or at least kind of gone on the same playing field. I mean, like you got to believe that you two still want to be the biggest band in the world. I mean, that quote, you know, about the mm-hmm. this is our job application. Like, I, I think yeah. that's one of the funniest quotes ever. Uh, <laughs> but like, I believe it. Like, you know, like I believe that they believe that. Oh, and that's yeah. what they want. And I mean, I saw them recently on Jimmy Kimmel promoting this upcoming tour, and it was classic. You two. It was just like you know, kind of. I'll play with a wink and a smile, but you're like, this is a machine. Like, like this is, there are so many working cogs in this machine and they are not letting up. And part of this tour, I mean, like, you know, they're, grand, they're saying like, well, songs of, the upcoming songs of uh, Experience, which is the companion to the last one, isn't quite ready because they're claiming that like in a post-Trump world, you know, blah, 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 blah. So instead, we'll celebrate the Joshua Tree with uh, all these series of heritage gigs, which if true, and that was always the intention, cool. If not, it's a hell of a, you know, kind of a, calculated move which will pay off in spades and it it re you know ignites them again like it refreshes them and it's interesting to them kind of calling on this one and I wonder you know if Octon Baby will, will get the same treatment or like you know if it's like because I, I do agree I, I think that's the better record but this one does seem to have the legacy for and not just for American audiences where you know and Ameri- like you read some of the American critics who loved it and my god they loved it like they gushed but Irish people fucking love this record as well like it's very interesting the kind of like the the connection that I, that I had, yeah. it was universal. Uh, I think it's interesting as well to look at the ages there were in 1987 when this came out. I mean, they were all 25, 26, 27. They've been together about 10, 11 years. This was um, fifth album, I think. I mean, they had been prolific um, in the early 80s. Uh, was an album on average every 18 months, essentially. And now... I mean, yeah, there's always this. I mean, there's this joke. They release a a new album and then six months later, they give an interview to Brian Boyd or somebody and they say, um, we're working on the uh, on a new album and it will be out in six months time. And and nobody, including Brian, believes them because, uh, you know, the the latter U2 is completely about, you know, tinkering and getting Danger Mouse to come in and then Rick Rubin and all these people and never they mm. they seem to lack the kind of confidence that they had the confidence to strip it down to, yeah f- exactly you know but it's funny because even on this the night there's a thing I don't know I, I mean reading these things online but it's a thing that Edge really wanted to have backing vocals on streets that had no name did and you hear that and he was refused and he was refused by Steve Lillywhite who was like yeah. no no yeah but yeah. I think that's that's kind of like uh, yeah, that thing you're saying, like there, there is an experimental side of them visible on, um, 
you know, uh, Unforgettable Fire, which is great, you know. Um, and then this is really polished, you know. And then you have, you know, Rattle on Home, which is like kind of live and it's know, a hodgepodge it's really all yeah, the, yeah. All over the place but it's still an important document of that band at the time and then they come back with Active Baby which again is a couple of years in between but is you know very very focused you know so um, when they're at the like I don't think you can, this is a really good album it's a really strong album um, the songs are really really good the best songs on it are, are brilliant and there's some of the best stuff that you two did and there's it's almost impossible to look back at this I wonder what would happen if they didn't make it or I wonder what happened if this wasn't a success. It's impossible to do that. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, they, it's, it's, it's hung over everything they did. And as you said, it put them onto the highest cog, you know, and you don't get off that, you know, like, so all you do is try and try your best to, you know, to kind of hang on and, you know, it, 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 it you deserve to be there, you know. One thing I've always found very interesting about that band is the sense that they're aware of what their best songs are when they bring a batch of songs to the studio because when you look at the deluxe versions of all these albums, there's some very ordinary pedestrian kind of songs that flesh them out. There aren't that many hidden gems at all. It's a sense that they kind of themselves and Eno and Lanois, whoever has been there, has kind of identified about 12 from 15 or 16 songs and said these are the ones. Hone them, hone them, get them right. Yeah. Um, consequently, the there's very little to enjoy about the deluxe versions of of, <laughs> of, of, of this album or any of the rest of them. Well, on that note, we'll take a short break. We'll come back and we'll see what uh, what comes out on top, so to speak. Okay, so I'm going to go with you two, the Joshua Tree, and Shane O'Connor, the Lion and the Cobra. Because I think it's a really impressive first offering. I think it's a really impressive, impactful statement. And I think it really, really speaks to Sinead O'Connor as an artist. And as for the Joshua Tree, despite my problems with the record and some of my misgivings, I do think it kind of earned its place as regards the legacy it's had. So, Rory. I'm going the exact same. Um, you two, the Joshua Tree, Sinead O'Connor. Um, I was blown away by the, the Sinead O'Connor album when I heard it. The Just the, I'd, you know, Mandinka is kind of a a part of the Irish canon I guess but uh, the album as a whole really impressed me and U2 Joshua Tree it's one of my favourite U2 albums it's one of my favourite albums so that's a, a no brainer Okay John Well despite being the best selling Irish album in history at 25 million copies and counting it has to be the, the Joshua Tree for me from U2 mainly because as you say it's front loaded people know everybody knows the first three or four songs but it's what happens after that that's very interesting and those are the songs that people should revisit there's some great songs there and then the other one is that petrol emotion and babble i think it's a really interesting good album um that doesn't sound of its time at all um it's it's kind of feels a little bit like a lost classic and uh, i know i'm going to be writing about it um soon very good michael I'd go with Sinead O'Connor, absolutely. Um, you know, I came to it fresh, I, you know, completely out of context. I didn't know anything about the singles or the history behind it. And it kind of, you know, it's it's not very forgiving, but it really won me over. So, absolutely. Very good. And Kieran McGuinness. Hi there. Um, <laughs> I am going, uh, same as John, I'm going to go for you two. I just, I just don't think you can, I don't think you can not recommend it. Um, I, I don't think I could not you, you could not <laughs> but I, I just can't I just think it is something that if 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 in some parallel universe you don't know it you, you know you're Irish and you listen to music you should you should go listen to it um, and then the second album I think which is a surprise to me um, that petrol emotion I think I don't think everyone's going to love it um, but I think give it a give it a chance because I think it's worth it's worth a listen so um, yeah 
So that's uh, you two out in front. <laughs> we have you two on four and Sinead O'Connor on three. Would it be fair to, to say both of those? I think so, yeah. But I think you've you've both made enough individual cases for that petrol motion as well. And to be fair, it's not that I wouldn't recommend it at all. I, I think it is interesting. I think it holds up in the 2017 landmass of kind of all kinds of genres and styles and definitely worth a go, especially for, as John says, the kind of lost classic status that it may or may not have. So... Uh, Bono and the boys who'd have thunk it eh <laughs> cry before dawn sorry apologies oh, yeah, yeah. sorry lads I mean like you know, better luck next time yeah. they're still going so, like, they have another album we'll get them in to explain themselves and we'll, see, we'll see what happens I'd like to thank my panel Michael, John, Rory, Kieran and myself for coming in you can't thank yourself I, but you I just did yourself? I just did Oh my god! I'm the host. <laughs> delete it. Delete the podcast. Host for the most. Uh, okay, to close us out. Uh, I recall years and years and years and years ago uh, when there was some kind of countdown. Uh, I think it was on like an Irish radio station. Best song of all time. And I don't even think it was just Irish. But they went with you two, with it without you. And I remember even at the time, even my young cynical self was kind of like, "Really?" I was like, "Oh come on, lads, really?" And then I sat there and I listened to it and I was transfixed. And I'll always remember that moment because it was a rare moment of me allowing myself to not be cynical. And I was kind of like, you know what? This is an incredible song. It really, really is. Like, it, it, it goes, it, it passes the, I can listen to the, it's, it's evergreen, I think. I think it's magnificent. So we're going to close out today's episode of No Encore, the revisit with you two and with or without you. Thank you very much.
This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central only on PBS. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.